I would also point out, just to call back a bit here, the YouTube videos, by definition, are more teacher-centric. They're presentational, right? The, the student isn't interacting. And so if the students are getting that information there, uh, and they come to us for the student-centered learning, that's a win-win. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up, Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Courtney Krippel. Courtney Krippel is the director of the Moores School of Music at the University of Houston, where he also serves as professor of piano and piano pedagogy. Many of his thoughts on piano teaching are included in his book, Teaching Piano Pedagogy, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. His ongoing musings on the future of music learning are featured in the regular column, Teaching Tomorrow, Today, which appears in the journal American Music Teacher. Since 2008, Dr. Krippel has served as a member of the Executive Steering Committee for the National Group Piano and Piano Pedagogy Forum, and he also serves as Chair of the Committee on Collegiate Pedagogy Teaching for the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy. Fun fact about Courtney, being born on the bayou in Louisiana, he learned to hunt alligators before he learned to play piano. Courtney, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Ben, and thank you for the invitation. It's really great. Today, we're going to be talking about Gen Z, the generation many of our listeners principally work with and a topic that you've written heavily about. We have some teachers such as myself who have essentially, although maybe there's a few adult students here and there, only ever worked with Gen Z. And then we have some teachers who may have been teaching a bit longer and have taught across generations. Can you clarify terms like baby boomer, millennials, and Generation Z, and talk about why, even though age is only one of many components of people's identities, sometimes these distinctions are helpful to draw? Absolutely. The, uh, the, as you point out, you know, this is a single lens we can look through to try to learn more about how our students learn, how we communicate with others effectively. And I, I would draw that, uh, I would make that distinction here that you're thinking in categories, you want to be careful with categories because, you know, the categories are useful. They help us in our day-to-day -day lives. They help us move through the world and make sense of things in general ways. But it can be limiting, right? And with, uh, you know, in the sciences, especially when we do uh, science in the humanities, everything gets a little bit squishier than science in the hard sciences. It's not black and white. So I do offer all of this with a grain of salt, you know, when I'm talking about a characteristic of a genera generation that can be somewhat overgeneralizing for that group. Uh, but it's also offering us a way to find trends. To, to see some useful uh, sort of trends and tendencies of a group so that we can function and be effective as teachers. So just to kind of set you know, our expectations here, we talk about Gen Z. That's generally that group that was probably born after 1995, 96 or so. So it is most of the students we work with today. Uh, and then you've heard quite a bit about the generation preceding Z, which would naturally be Y, right? Our millennials or generation Y. And those are those uh, students you might be engaged with who were probably born right before the 80s, maybe the late 70s into the 90s. And before that, then you find people like me who fall into that generation X, which sounds very mysterious. I always love <laughs> the way the X sounded. Uh, 
But those who were born, you know, late 60s into the 70s. And before that, you had your baby boomers who might be, you know, have grown up and uh, been part of uh, really development of culture in the 60s. And before that, you go further back toward that generation that was born around or before, you know, uh, World War II, basically 19, before 1945. And gosh, all of that sounds very ageist to talk about it that way. <laughs> but all of us grew up around a certain culture that was in effect, and especially uh, access to certain technology. I think that's one of the big ones. So it changes, you know, how we move through the world. And all of these, you know, when we look at these generation categories, they, they aren't boxes that we all fit into. You know, there's no hard lines there. And when we think about them as teachers, I think we have to think about those generations as we can find trends and preferences. It doesn't define someone, but because they grew up in that generation, they tend to have certain preferences. And if we were aware of those, it can be uh, very helpful. So Yeah, I like that idea of not being oblivious to trends that we observe and noticing that different people born in different times grew up in different worlds, while at the same time, not, as you say, putting people in boxes or making preemptive judgments about students we encounter. I think that's a, uh, admittedly, sometimes an unclear boundary to draw, but I, I like that combination of studying the sociology of different generations while recognizing individual differences. Uh, today, I would like to talk about some, again, I like this word, tendencies across today's generation of children, which might impact piano lessons. So first, learning style. In your article, Discovering Best Practices by Studying Generational Learning Preferences, you write about how preferences in learning have changed over time, with some of the earlier generations preferring what you write as teacher-centered approaches, and today's children preferring student-centered discovery learning. Can you explain this distinction you draw and talk about some ways piano teachers today can substitute teacher-centered practices for student-centered ones? Yes, I think that's a good example of an instance where the preferences of the generation aren't necessarily pointing you in the direction of better pedagogy. Hmm. Because honestly, when you think of teacher-centered versus student-centered, most of the research, maybe all of it, I'm not sure, but a lot of the research plus the, uh, the practitioner knowledge that's been gathered over centuries, really, of teachers working with students, demonstrate student-centered learning is probably the best way to go. You want your students, the learning comes from within, that learning comes from doing. Uh, you know, even back if you look earlier in the 20th century, late 19th century, that was a big trend then, and it certainly has continued in music education research today. That being said, that's always the pivot where someone says, everything I said just now doesn't matter, I'm gonna say the opposite. <laughs> That being said, if your student you're working with actually has a preference and experience in working one way, if you flip that and do the other thing, it's going to make them uncomfortable. And no matter how effective that pedagogy might look on paper or in research, it might not be the best thing at that time for the student. And so to get back to your question of when would you choose teacher-centered learning over student-centered learning, I think some of my music education colleagues would simply say, Never do that. It's a bad <laughs> idea. But think, for instance, if you had, you know, uh, someone from a previous generation, naturally is going to be older, probably will be an adult, adult student of yours. And if that adult comes in and you're working in a student-centric environment, they could be very uncomfortable. Yeah. 
the learning could be less effective. You could take a take a concrete example, for instance, you know, say you're working with that student trying to develop a practice plan for the week. And you were there sort of engaging the student in conversation in a very sort of developmental collaborative way. And you might be getting absolutely nothing coming back from the student. They might be very uncomfortable and generating very few ideas at the time. Um, or So they might actually need that clear guidance, that sort of expositional approach where you're saying, you know what, try this out this week. This is what you should do. And that would be the most comfortable thing for that student then. Uh, of course, then you could develop more of that relationship. You could even give that person more experience with student-centered learning, and they could grow into that despite, you know, a generational preference that's there. I'm really interested in you saying that I think you believe, I believe you said centuries of research on pedagogy has expressed uh, more benefits to student-centered learning as opposed to teacher-centered learning. If that's the case, is I don't know if you know the answer to this, to why some of the earlier generations then prefer teacher-centered learning? Like, Why hasn't it always been a preference for student-centered learning? Well, I can give you my hypothesis. I'm not sure I have good research to back this up. I think a lot of those things, a lot of that philosophy of student-centered learning uh, gave way because of practical considerations. So, you know, the late 19th century and 20th century, especially in the United States, gave rise to the educational system we have now, which is trying to deal with educating a lot of people. Oh. So you have a lot of practical considerations, namely the classroom. How do you deal with, you know, 20, 30, 80 people in a classroom at once? Uh, and so I think a lot of practical considerations gave way to that student-centered approach. You know, you look at a Montessori school, why does it have all of that hands-on learning? Well, the population's a lot smaller and the ratio of right. teacher to student is much higher. So you can do those kinds of things. But I think a lot of it, you know, the rise of the middle class, we look at that in the 19th century, more people being educated. Uh, and teachers being a rarer commodity than students, right? We still have that, that problem today. I think that's one of those. We come up with a model, like how are we going to do this uh, with so many people? And we start making, uh, uh, you know, we start trying to say, well, we can, we can give way to this and, you know, make this work in the classroom this way. Um, so I think if you look back, you know, I think a lot of the reaction in the 20th century, especially the late 20th century, you know, I, heard, I, I still hear things today about sort of teachers being retrained of how they work with students. And a lot of it's about ideas that, like you were pointing out, they're very old ideas. It's not new at all, mm -hmm. uh, but we're kind of coming back to it because we lost a lot of it. Um, well, that's so interesting to tie the economics of the middle class and classroom size to teaching philosophy, even if we are in an earlier generation where all the research pointed to student-centered learning, that it was not practically as feasible to do what all the research suggested was the way to go. Um, that's really interesting. The next feature of uh, the lives of Generation Z that I'd like to, like to talk about is the somewhat sped up pace of daily life. Uh, in your article, Enjoying the Moment While Planning Ahead, Helping Modern Students Gain Focus, you discuss how children today are used to instant gratification and 
planning for the future and always thinking what's next. And you contrast this with the slow, incremental process of practicing piano. And you also discuss how this goal-directed approach can make students sometimes lose appreciation for the learning process. Can you speak to how we as piano teachers can encourage students today to appreciate the delayed gratification element of piano practicing and focusing on what you write as, quote, the now? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about, by the way. So if I start uh, waxing philosophically too much, you'll have to cut me off here. Oh, wax philosophical. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I may, I I go back to another idea I wanted to point out, because you were asking why did that uh, teacher-centered learning perpetuate for so long? There's one other thing I should point out. I think I would be remiss not to say it. Uh, You know, my first hypothesis there is just practical considerations for teaching lots of people. But the other one is also very true, is that we tend to teach the way we were taught. Mm -hmm. And so once that becomes part of the system, then, you know, well, my teacher was amazing. I'm going to teach like that person does. And our sort of traditions, they don't evolve very quickly, especially in something traditional. So I just wanted to point that out, too. Hmm. Uh, You know, when it comes to, like, living in the now and helping our students enjoy that. I think what we hit on there is one of the most challenging aspects of actually like being human is dealing with the passage of time. And this, this is why I warned you, I might get people. <laughs> that does sound philosophical, but it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's really broad. And uh, basically that's how I start every day of my life. Then my brain just starts, working, <laughs> you know, the broadest possible question I could ask to start my day. Uh, let's start the day with an existential crisis, then we'll go on from there. <laughs> um, but it's very true. Like, how do we deal with time? We're in this existence, like where we have to look back at what just happened. We've got to be planning for the future. And we're trying to enjoy the now. I mean, that's an incredibly difficult balance. I think it's, you know, the human question in a lot of ways. So, you know, if we can help our students in any way through music to, you know, really have an existence that helps them thrive, you know, emotionally, mentally, that would be a pretty amazing thing we can do for other people, I think. And I think we've got that potential in music um, because it does connect us to time in ways that a lot of the arts or other human experiences can't. You know, like think of the the benefit of being a performer. You get to the experience of like really being alive because you've got the rhythm, you've got the beat, it's synchronizing you to your surroundings. And then we live within a piece of music uh, that we're doing some things right now. We're playing a note right now or a group of notes. We're also basing our decisions right now on what just happened in the music, right? We're pacing. And then we're setting the audience and ourselves up for what comes next. It's like temporal magic, what we're trying to accomplish there. And I think, you know, that is a really exciting thing to bring our students into that experience. Um, So, you know, how do you lead your students into that while they're focused on the mania of today and what's coming next? You know, these poor students who are overworked, they've got homework, they've got soccer after this, you know, there's a million things on their mind. And students who want to jump to those experiences you're describing of performing instantly, but don't like the practice that has to lead to that. Right, right. And it's it's our society and culture, too, yeah. that we're very much uh, product-based mm-hmm. rather than process-based. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do we engage them in the process that way? 
And I think a lot of, you know, my most successful experiences in helping others experience that is leading by example. So you've got to be fascinated during the process yourself. You know, you've got to be making discoveries with your students rather than presenting them, which, by the way, sounds a lot like the student-centered learning rather yeah. than teacher-centered learning from before. Uh -huh. I think, you know, embracing the vulnerability of the learning process with your student mm. rather than becoming prescriptive. You know, I really enjoy when I make a discovery during a student lesson, even though it should be about more of the student than me. But if you can get them to enjoy sort of that fascination with you, uh, I think that's half the battle. Mm. You do have to commit, though, to the idea that you are interested in the process and that you aren't focused on the product because so much of our language can easily slip into product driven, right? Mm -hmm. When's your next performance? How much right. do we have to get left, you know, before that recital happens? Mm -hmm. Are you ready for this competition? Mm -hmm. uh, all of these things will drag you out of the process and think, well, now I need to start teaching to the test or practicing to the test. And it really takes a commitment to leave that thinking behind. Uh, and I think we also have to be flexible. Sometimes we're more focused on the product and more on the process, and there's an ebb and flow there. There's a realism we have to work within, too, all of that. Yeah, interestingly, I've also had a situation in the reverse where the parent who's from an earlier generation is very product-focused and is always asking these sorts of questions, and the student who's younger yeah. doesn't seem to care. So it shows that the world we live in now can have an effect on everybody. Absolutely. You know, I when I first, you know, probably about 10 years ago, started committing more to teaching and more practice with improvisation in lessons. Mm -hmm. I had more problems convincing the parents that that was valuable than I did with the students. You know, they, they didn't understand it because it seemed sort of squishy. Where are we going with this? What's coming out of this, right? So it is difficult, yeah. uh, even for the students or their parents to understand it. Yeah, I want going off this idea of um product focus. I want to talk about another interesting article of yours, which is called Studio Marketing Possibilities in the Emerging Freemium World. Um, so another interesting feature of life today is people are very used to getting high quality products for free. Um, and I want to explore this topic from two angles. In your article, you talk about the advertising models of some companies like Skype, which offer free services to their clients. And you talk about how piano teachers can consider those advertising models in their own studios. Can you elaborate a bit on what you talked about in that article? Sure. I wrote that article with Joy Morin, who has a website and blog called Color in My Piano. And at the time, I was really admiring what she was doing, which was giving away a lot of product and even service for free on her website as part of that freemium model. So bring the audience in, engage them, get them hooked, and then they become your client in whatever capacity whether they're purchasing products or services. And from what I understand, she's still been very successful with that model. And I'd recommend anyone reach out to her website for sort of how she's doing that because it's really practical. And it seems like she's having a lot of fun with it as well. Uh, ben, I want to be careful because I have to be honest here. I'm not an independent music teacher right now. That's and so I, I, I don't want to, you know, not be practicing what I preach here. So I think piano teachers do have to figure this out and what's going to work. But I do know one thing is, is true in whatever service or product you're engaged with is that if you have the opportunity to get someone hooked, that's an invaluable opportunity. 
So if you have that freemium moment, whatever it is, whether it's a download on your website or whether it's a, a, a piano lesson, if you can demonstrate the value you have in that moment, then you could have that client. And I do know that from you know almost any aspect of my work, whether that's in development at the music school and working with you know new patrons, or whether it you know was when I was running my studio. So I, I was thinking back you know on that article at the time I was teaching much more in a private studio in addition to my college, uh, my academic work, and for every interview I did and. A lot of piano teachers do this, but for every interview with a new client, I would have, you know, the interview and then the first free lesson, right? We'd have that first lesson experience there. And from what I recall, and I believe this is true, I do not think I ever had anyone not sign up for lessons after that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can show them what you do, if they can see you in action, then you've got them. So that's that freemium moment. Yeah. How do you get them engaged? Yeah. I also see that sometimes used not just for piano lessons, but for piano teacher related products. I recently had Doreen Hall um, on this podcast who's the, who owns P uh, Paloma Piano. And there's a ton of free, what she calls freebies on the website. But if you purchase the premium package or the subscription, then you get access to more. And I think that's similar to the model you describe in that article of Skype, where there's a base that, of what everyone gets for free. But then if you pay additional things that come up. Right. I think the challenge now is that people are used to paying for their services in ways that seem free, right? It's either on YouTube, it's the likes someone gets or it's the uh you know it's even on uh you know those that you don't even do the likes but you've done the sign up and you're giving away your data and the companies yep, are happy yep, yep. That, you know? that goes into uh, the next question i wanted to ask which is about another feature that a lot of people growing up today have that perhaps the earlier generations didn't is there are a lot of opportunities to learn piano for quote unquote free, you bring up the good point about you're still giving away your data and all of that, but at least financially, you don't have to sacrifice anything. And so a lot of children today can go on YouTube and search piano lessons, and they can get many, many videos that go step by step. There are even apps that are designed to teach you how to play piano. Um, how do we convince children today that these resources are not a replacement for a real piano teacher? I think in some ways, we should actually be convincing them that they are a replacement for a piano teacher in many ways. I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say. Yes, that was not the answer I expected. I know, I know. <laughs> a crazy thing to say, and probably anyone listening to it, they just swerved off the road if they're listening to this podcast in this car and they're screaming my name out into the night or something. I don't know. But what I mean by that is there are a lot of things that that technology can do quite well. And I think if we focus on what it does really well and let the technology do that, then our services as piano teacher can be even more valuable. And I think what will come across to our clients is that we have much, much more to offer than they even think we do. So for example, you know, there are some things that people can do really well with a YouTube video, like know if they're playing the correct notes or not. People do not need to pay me lots of money per hour to tell them to play an F sharp instead of an F natural, if YouTube can do it, right? Or a student doesn't need to come in and then have me tell them, well, your beat's not steady, go practice this way, right? 
That's wasted resources for people to pay me to do that because I have something much more to offer them than that. So I think what it does is it offers us an opportunity to focus on those things that we can actually do better than technology can do, at least for now. So if we can show our students why they're coming to us for that information. So for instance, one of the best things right now is, you know, teaching piano technique. There's information online for that. There's probably more bad information than good information. I know there's some really great sites out there. And so we could focus on something that they really need us for. Or maybe it's interpretation. You know, the timing of a Chopin nocturne, it's still very difficult for software to figure yeah. that out. Right. More or less teach it yeah. to someone else. I also think why technique is a good example you brought it up is because these apps and websites cannot correct you if you're playing with a poor technique the way they can in many of these apps correct you if you play the rhythm wrong or play the wrong note. Right, right. So it gives us more time and a lesson potentially to do the things that we can do really well. Right. I would also point out, just to call back a bit here, the YouTube videos by definition are more teacher-centric. They're presentational, right? The, the student isn't in Ah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, by definition. And so if the students are getting that information there uh, and they come to us for the student-centered learning, that's a win-win. You know, the internet is, uh, I compare it sometimes to like the invention of the printing press. Because before the printing press, if I wanted information, I was probably getting it from a human source, right? I had to hear... Uh, the, the priest at church or the teacher somewhere lecture on that. And then books gave access. Now the information's in a book, not that we all ran out and got it automatically, but and sometimes we didn't understand what was in the books. And the internet's like that, like it's changed the game completely. Now students have access to what things should sound like, hopefully, you know, we could say some performances are better than other as sort of models. They can see what it looks like, and they can read about it. It's a multimedia experience. So it sort of brought that access, you know, to a, to a whole new level. I would say we as teachers haven't even figured out how to adapt to that yet. And that's the hardest thing. But I really like this idea you brought up earlier about seeing us as, in a way, collaborating with these products like YouTube and some of these apps rather than competing. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, then next, although we're talking kind of about a variety of teaching strategies, uh, we focus a little bit more on the students as opposed to the generation of the teachers. And in your article, Do Music Teachers Get Better with Age and Experience? You speak a bit about age differences of teachers, although you don't necessarily discuss it with respect to generational differences. But I did want to talk about one trend that I sometimes see in younger teachers, um, although not exclusively younger teachers, where there can be a temptation to seem cool and relatable with the students. Uh, for instance, staying up to date on all of the trending musical artists and TV shows that these children watch and offering easy piano arrangements of songs from those programs or having their students make piano-related TikTok videos. Um, I've also seen easy piano songs that have titles that include contemporary terms like texting and selfie. Uh, can you talk about these types of teaching strategies where teachers try to, as directly as possible, relate to the culture that their students are a part of? I would love to rant about that. I mean, uh, talk about that, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the key word was in your last statement, you said where teachers try to. I think if you have to try to do that, you probably shouldn't mm. be doing it. Okay. So like sometimes, you know, if it's part of who you are and what you do already, it's going to come across in a very genuine manner. And if you're not, it's not going to come across very well. And I think it's, it's not effective. I'll tell you, 
There's a funny thing that happened to me last week. I have a 14-year-old daughter. She's my oldest child. And uh, we have a similar sense of humor. We're both a little bit cynical and dark in our humor. And she had made some statement, and I came back with a sarcastic, dark remark. I can't remember what it was. But her response to that was, hey, I'm supposed to be the edgy one here. Uh-huh. Right? Yep. Totally yep. called me on that. Like, stop trying to be too cool, Dad, even though I wasn't trying that hard at the time. But, you know, she didn't respond to that. And she doesn't need me to be her peer. I think most of our students don't need us to be their peers, right? They're looking for a teacher. In fact, it's not even about us. It's about their goals and where they want to get to. And when we try like that, sometimes it's pointing back at ourselves too much. I think we, we've sort of lost focus. You know, every once in a while, maybe you want to say, oh, yeah, my teacher's so cool. They did this or this, you know. But, and, you know, like every once in a while, it's funny to watch like uh, maybe a university president try to do the Harlem Shake or something like that. But most of the time, we just kind of cringe and move on. It doesn't draw us in. So at least that's my perspective on it. Yeah, I like the idea of you could relate to their learning style with student-centered learning. Maybe that's more productive in some cases than relating to the specific cultural artists and terms that they like. Um, Do you have any other thoughts or recommendations for teachers regarding teaching today's generation of children? Well, I think that last thing you mentioned, you know, like being ready to accept where they are with their preferences, Uh but also their value systems, right? Like... um, if we are embracing some sort of TikTok trend or things like that, one of the best things about doing that could be that you're accepting that there's a value for this person of that, and you're willing to, to look at that. And I think one of the questions that we as teachers and educators need to be focused on right now is looking at our value system and looking at the value systems of others and determine you know, how we're adapting to those. You know, At this moment in time, the national dialogue is focused on you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. And part of us, yeah. you know, we need to be thinking, well, especially in Western teaching, we've been focused on value systems that involve technical virtuosity, that involve complexity, that involve the so-called fine arts. So when we deal with, you know, a modern audience, modern students, I think one of the important things is to think, why are they coming into this? What do they want to get out of this? And how can I help them on that journey? So... And I think, you know, having that approach where you're still curious and you're still learning and then you'll be very successful, I think, with any generation of learners. I will add a point here, too. When we think of, I mentioned earlier, you know, the dangers of categories, putting people in boxes. Well, we're talking about generational preferences, but we haven't talked about uh, socioeconomic preferences or experiences. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say preferences Mm -hmm. there. Um, race and class and gender and all of these things, you know, that we haven't spent as much time in the history of uh, education exploring as much as we should. And I think we're, we're becoming more focused on it. So, you know, even in my book that I published, Teaching Piano Pedagogy, I was trying to establish, you know, where we are today and what we've been doing traditionally in teacher training and things like that. And I see it as a glaring omission that there's not a chapter in there about how we address our inherent biases and how uh, we are working in uh, toward more access and understanding in that. Yes, these are all topics that I'm intending to work through on future podcast episodes. Thank you for that important caveat. 
Finally, today we only talked about a small sliver of everything that's on your mind. Can you give our listeners a sense of what you're up to now and how they can learn more about you? Sure, sure. Well, as director of the music school here, uh, and I'm at a, at a university that is a, a research public institution, and our music school is based on a traditional conservatory model. And uh, really what I've been focusing on is how schools of music at universities like mine will adapt and grow into the future. So what is our 10, 20, and 50 year vision uh, for that? That's where a lot of my focus is these days. And new programs, are how our programs will grow. And the city of Houston, it's a big medical city, so we're also exploring a lot of uh, new collaborations between the Texas Medical Center, our new College of Medicine. I've started some research projects on uh, oh. the possibility of musical interventions as medicine. Okay. Like music therapy, sort of? Yes, exactly. Uh, so, you know, we kind of talked today about, you know, growing our client list and impacting lives and things like that. And music has a lot of possibilities that are beyond sort of the performative or the research that we have thought about a lot in academic institutions and conservatories. And so I think, uh, you know, the time is, is ripe for us to look at how we in schools of music and as musicians ourselves, we just have, a, I think, a limitless number of possibilities in how we uh, improve the world around us through music. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking with me today. It's been a real pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up Creative Conversations for today's Piano Teachers. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.